When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Guys, podcasting needs more listeners. The biggest block between all of the people in your life who would benefit from this incredible new thing that's happening with podcasting, all this wealth of great conversation and journalism and storytelling and their ears, the biggest block is they don't know how to do it. When my dad wants to listen to one of my shows, I have to send him a link to the actual MP3 file. He has the app on his phone. This holiday season, I'm going to see him at a Hanukkah party. I'm going to pick up his phone. I'm going to show him where the podcasting app is, and I'm going to subscribe to Canada Land and to some other shows that he might enjoy. And I want you to do the same. I want you to give the gift of podcasting. I want you to help, not Canada Land specifically, look, subscribe them to whatever you want, whatever you think they're going to connect with. But if you, when you're seeing your family this holiday season, get them up and running, they need that help. They actually need a person to pick up their phone and subscribe to podcasts for them. Tweet news of that to me at Jesse Brown. I will tweet back with a thank you message to your uncle, to your grandfather, to your niece or nephew who you have introduced to podcasting. They will get a personalized message from a weirdo that they have never heard of before. Let's spread podcasting this holiday season. What the hell am I supposed to do with this newspaper bailout? I have no idea. The question that's been put to me by a lot of patrons, like, so you're not taking this money, right? I've been so vocal against this thing. What a hypocrite I would be to take this money. And I have not come out and said, we're not taking this money. And uh, so am I hedging because I want the money? Yeah, I want them. That'd be great to get the money. As far as I can tell, they're being very careful. They're not positioning this. They're saying this has to go to the labor costs of your editorial team because there's just so much bad press around Paul Godfrey giving himself huge bonuses while he lays off. He gave himself $5 million last year, laid off 10% of post media. Like, like that's what's going on. So it's going to look horrible if they're giving this money to Paul Godfrey. But they're kind of giving it to Paul Godfrey because if you earmark it for labor costs and you give me or Paul Godfrey whatever amount of money, if you give Paul Godfrey $10 million towards hiring reporters, this money is going to reporters, well, that's $10 million he doesn't have to spend out of Post Media's budget that he was spending. And there's nothing in these rules, as far as I can tell, that says this has to be for new editorial spending, that you have to actually beef up your newsroom. You can just take those salaries that you were paying out of your budget, take the government's money. 
pay those salaries with government's money and pocket the rest. I mean, they're not going to get involved in like telling Post Media how it can spend its money. And I guess that would go for Canada Land too. I mean, who knows? Maybe they're willing to pay for the salaries of the whole staff here. Like that's like hundreds of thousands of dollars I could just put in my pocket. Go on some nice vacations. I could get, you know what I need is like, I'm not going to lose weight on my own. Like I know this at this point, but if I had like a personal trainer and a nutritionist, you know, if I had like a team on this and this isn't just because of vanity, like I snore and nothing works. Maybe this would finally deal with a snoring thing. This is, this is a good thing I'd be doing for my wife. I need to take this money. No, that's not what I'm going to do because of course there's a conflict of interest. But here's the thing. I don't even know what my interest is. I can't figure out. Canada Land's interest in this. I'm having trouble. We don't know the details yet, right? This is what I can say definitively, and you can hold me to this. If I need to go before a panel, some government-appointed panel of journalists, and say, we are a legitimate news organization, we deserve this bailout money, I will not do that. I mean, first of all, we cover those people, and that's fundamental to this whole project, is that you don't take money from people that you cover. I mean, we cover government too, so I don't know how we could take this money. I mean, I have an interest in not taking this money because it asserts the independence of Canada land. We are dependent on you. We're dependent on patrons. If you guys were to find out that I'm taking government money, I would lose a lot of patrons. I mean, some would just say, why should I pay for this twice? If my tax dollars are paying for Canada land, why should I pay for it? And others would be like, fuck you, hypocrite. Your whole thing is not taking this money. And so even if, forget my principles, okay, just from a strategic point of view, it's probably a bad idea for us to take a dime of what we haven't so far. You know, I mean, for us to start doing that is just like, we're messing with the whole deal here. So no, we're not taking the money. But Jonathan Goldsby says, you don't know how this money is going to work. Our editor says, look at the fine print here. It might not be that you have to go before a panel of journalists, as is being suggested. There will be some panel of journalists, but Jonathan's read on this is that they're just going to appoint this panel of journalists to come up with a list of criteria for what a news organization is, hand that over to the CRA, and then they'll just be like a box on our tax return. And if you tick off that box and say, I am a news organization, you pay a lot less taxes. I mean, we have an accountant whose job it is, is to try to get us into any legitimate tax savings we can. So we pay less taxes, but it's just less money that we're paying the government. Would I stand on ceremony and not do that? I mean, I could make an argument that that would be the irresponsible thing. That's a bad way to run a company is to not take a tax savings when you could. That's money that we could be putting towards journalism. But here's the other strategic aspect of this, Okay. If I did stand on ceremony and just refused even the slightest semblance of any, but we're just not touching it, we won't even check that box, then I would be in a position to say that we are covering the media as the only news organization in the country that's not taking government money. Wait, no, I can't say we'd be the only one. There are already two media companies that have made that claim. They've claimed each of them that they're the only ones. The rebel has said, we are the only media organization in the country that won't take a dime of that Trudeau money. And Black Locks reporters said, we are the only news organization in the country that won't take a dime. So, you know, I guess if you can say that you're the only one, even if there's others, then we could say that too. Anyhow, you get what I'm getting at here. Theoretically, our mission as media critics and media reporters would be buttressed, will be buttressed. I mean, whether we take it or not, we cover the CBC harsher than we do anyone else because they are paid with public money. And now I guess that's going to be everybody. So maybe we have a strategic reason to just stay as far away from this as possible. I don't know. I can't discuss this, guys. I'm trying to figure out how to cover the media bailout, the newspaper bailout. 
And I'm trying to figure out how to be as upfront with you as possible about my role in it, my potential conflict of interest, but I can't figure out where my interests lie. And I think that a lot of people are assuming that my interests are against it because I've just been such a critic of the damn thing. And that's a hard thing to separate because I might be in a situation here where I hate the damn thing so much. I really am disgusted by it, but I actually stand to gain from it where my interests are to take that money. And maybe there's even a way I could do that without completely polluting the relationship. Maybe that's possible. I don't know. But I really do hate it. And that is a hurdle in covering it as well. How much do I hate it? Let me count the ways. The first thing you need to know about how gross this is, is that Paul Godfrey loves it. Paul Godfrey has called this a turning point, a turning point for newspapers in Canada. 80% of Canadians don't want a newspaper bailout. So they're not calling it a newspaper bailout. I think this is so duplicitous how this is being fed to the public. They have sandwiched the actual near $600 million subsidy, which isn't even going to be a five-year $600 million subsidy because it's going to go on forever. They sandwiched it between completely benign things that are good things like allowing nonprofit news and tax breaks on digital news subscriptions. And oh, by the way, in the middle, $600 million for the news industry. And I've gotten pushback. Don't call it a newspaper bailout. This is for the entire news industry, which is why I'm sure Candleland could get some of it. They would love to give us a few hundred thousand dollars because it would legitimize the whole thing to give critical companies, small digital companies, give them a few bucks, co-op them, neutralize a critic and show that you're being digital forward. Meanwhile, there's $600 million involved here. So, uh, you know, I'm sure we could get some, I'm going to stop thinking about the money now. Okay. Back to my disgust over this. Paul Godfrey is very happy. Paul Godfrey was whining like a baby. I mean, I I hate to say it. There's a lot of older people listening to the show who are digitally forward, forward thinking people. I am going to call this an old man newspaper bailout. Not because I have anything against old men, but because these particular old men, Paul Godfrey, John Hundrick at the Toronto Star, they have failed so completely. These are the guys who were steering the Titanic and it was like they had warning. It was 10 years ago. Everybody was saying, do you see that iceberg right off in the distance? No, there's no iceberg. Well, it's a lot bigger now. That's definitely an iceberg. Well, maybe it's an iceberg, but we're just going to go. They just drove it right into the iceberg. They did nothing. Maybe that's not true. They did things. They laid off people. They minimized their newsrooms to the smallest possible level. They took cash from predatory lenders. They paid themselves bonuses. They did backroom deals to gobble up each other's assets and consolidate them, swapping and killing newspapers after promising not to do that, merging the Sun newsrooms with Post Media. They promised they weren't going to do that. Godfrey promised that. He did it anyhow. They made promises to the public to keep newsrooms open. And then they broke those promises. They launched foolhardy, expensive gambles that everybody knew were going to fail. They were warned Star Touch was going to fail. They did everything wrong when they did anything at all. And, and there was nothing they did that could have worked. I have been in rooms with these men. I've heard how they speak about the internet. They refused to learn. They, they did not want to know how it worked. They just saw it as a predatory thing that was stealing money that was rightfully theirs. They fucked it all up. And to reward them for that is so gross to me. But how could I detach that from my own interests here? As it is gross to slowly and through hard work build something that makes a little bit of money and watch a massive truckload of money go towards people who did nothing and who actually did harm. That doesn't actually matter to this debate, right? Because all that matters ultimately is what we get out of this. Will this save journalism? And how do we have that debate when we don't even know the details? I mean, are we talking about saving journalism as an industry, saving jobs, or are we talking about saving the practice of journalism. How can I even have this debate when I am an interested party and anybody in Canada that I might speak to 
is an interested party. Like their actual salary is tied to their position on this argument. At a certain point, you're not having a debate. You're having a negotiation between two interested parties. And we don't know the details yet. But by the time we actually get the details, the deal will be done. There'll be no debate to be had that actually has a consequence. I'm going to try to discuss this. And the important thing when you are so convinced of your own point of view, of your own opinion, is to bring in somebody who can challenge it. And that's a hard thing to do in this environment. But Professor Jay Rosen of New York University is a big brain in the newspaper business who has been charting and studying and analyzing the future of news and the collapse of the old industry. And he has chimed in on the Canadian subsidy. He hasn't said much about his take, but what he has said is that it might not be a bad idea for us. Wouldn't work in America, but for us, it might be the right thing. I want to know what he means by that. I want to know what he thinks of this whole thing. And I want to know what his perspective is on what's happening elsewhere. Because one of my biggest fears about this is that this move, this newspaper bailout is going to press pause on the Canadian media at its lowest point and block innovation and not allow new things to happen and isolate us from what's happening in the rest of the world. There I go opining again. But that's what I want to talk with him about is what is happening in the rest of the world that we might be isolated from as things continue to shift elsewhere. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Tom Smith, Lara Mills, Ronan Palmer, Virginia Lind, Lee Honeywell, Michael McLennan, Amanda Allen, and David Baxter. My name is David Baxter, and I'm a librarian living in Guelph, Ontario. I support Canada Land because you're doing important investigative work that is otherwise missing from the Canadian media landscape. That and having one ad-free feed instead of four ad-full feeds is just exquisite. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world, and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're, if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of, organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, 
along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. There is no doubt that there is a movement across the globe to defund, discredit, and put down the news media and the professionals who work in it as a way of generating political muscle. And that is a problem because um, it's not like these movements have any ideas about what to replace real journalism with. So that's one thing uh, that's happening. Um, The public broadcasting systems in the countries that have strong ones like Australia, Canada, BBC, Germany, those are very important national institutions. Mm -hmm. They have a good deal of support. And so the fact that there are some politicians making noises about the CBC being too liberal, I mean, that's probably been going on for for decades. But if you're saying that Canada is at the point where it's ready to get rid of the CBC, that's a big national decision that affects the entire culture. And it would be, in my view, a mistake, a tragedy for that to happen but um, the way that democratic politics is going around the world, it's certainly uh, a threat. That's some of the the big picture uh, view that I take towards these questions that are arising in Canada around subsidy and support of the news media. Yeah, no, that's not really a threat here. I mean, there are some voices within our conservative circles and, you know, Maxime Bernier, but no, no one who is really anywhere close to power right now to defund the CBC. Um, okay. It's sort of moving in the opposite direction. You're talking about countries where the populist movement is trying to destroy public broadcasting. The, the Trudeau liberals restored a lot of funding to the CBC that had been removed by Stephen Harper's government, which, you know, it's an interesting dynamic because I worked at the CBC when Harper was the prime minister. And we certainly bristled at the public's uh, certainty that we were in the tank and trying to install mm-hmm. a liberal government because people took their jobs as journalists very seriously and impartiality very seriously. And yet we knew that Harper hated the CBC and would defund it as much as he could. And it was also uh, suspected and hoped for that if the liberals ever got back into office, the CBC would be stronger and that came to pass. So there are literally you know, dozens, hundreds of journalists at the CBC right now who would not have jobs if Justin Trudeau had not won, and who might not have jobs if somebody like Maxime Bernier or or uh, Michelle Rempel were to be in power. You know, the journalists can say that has no bearing on how I report the news, but I don't know that the public is wrong for wondering if that isn't a factor. You know, because uh, journalists are only human, and you know that is a very direct conflict of interest. If you if you're out of a job pending the outcome of an election, you've got a very strong personal interest in seeing things go one way. Yeah, but the difficulty I have with what you're saying, Jesse, is that it seems to posit the existence of some sort of system where conflicts like that don't arise. And I don't know what that system is. Uh, To back up for a second, every era in journalism has subsidized the collection of serious public interest news. Public service journalism has always been subsidized by something. Mm -hmm. And the subsidy system changes over time uh, 
with changes in economics, technology, and yes, governments. And, and each subsidy system that we know of has strengths and weaknesses. So the advertising subsidy certainly has a lot of strengths because it does create a certain kind of independence from government, but it has a lot of weaknesses too. That's why there are so many publications that have food sections, not because everyone's crazy about food, but because there are ads for food. Or to take an example more recent in the United States, we had dozens of digital news operations uh, deciding that they were going to start doing video yeah. because there was pre-roll advertising for video, right? Well, that's that's a, a result of the advertising subsidy. And for those journalists to say, we're not influenced by our advertisers is crazy. So if it's a billionaire subsidizing your journalism, if it's advertising subsidizing your journalism, if it's the tax code subsidizing your journalism, if it's uh, a license fee subsidizing your journalism. Yeah, there's always a uh, an influence there. There's always a danger there. Uh, so let's like have a conversation about the real world of subsidizing journalism rather than imagining that there's some sort of pure system that we are devolving from because that's just not true. I think that's accurate. It's sort of like what did Bob Dylan say? You you got to serve somebody and and. It seems to be historically yeah, during his Christian phase. Yeah. He said that. <laughs> you know, whether it's service journalism creating the ad bucks that allows investigations to take place or I mean, in Canada, we do have uh, billionaires like the Thompson family who seem willing to operate the Globe and Mail, if not at a loss, uh, pretty damn close to it for whatever influence mm -hmm. that provides. And that's a history in the States, of, be it, you know, Hearst's or Pulitzer's and, you know, sure. dozens Throwing of others. Your influence around is, is a subsidy system. I mean, I, I kind of want to push back a little bit on your starting position, which is essentially this defeatist position that news can never actually pay for itself. And that, that you know, it, it may be true technically that there's always been other forces that have underwritten the news. I don't know that we've ever really tested the theory that news cannot be profitable. But the bigger concern I have is that it's not that I believe in some Pollyanna-ish, you know, pure universe of news, that this is tainting, as much as we have had a multiplicity of influencers, be it one mm -hmm. organization influenced by its publisher's leanings, another organization influenced by its advertising, another influenced by its government funding. And actually, mm -hmm. at the CBC, it wasn't so much that we felt influenced by government financing. What actually had a role in editorial decision-making was the CBC's skittishness at the perception that the reader would perceive us as being in the tank actually did dictate a lot of what we did or didn't that do. That sounds totally plausible. You know what I mean? So sure. you you kind of have a, a multiplicity of factors mm -hmm. in a, a robust system, an ecosystem of news where each organization is kind of driven, you know, maybe not purely, but they're driven by, by differing and sometimes opposing forces. And you replace that with a system where there is, you know, I think it matters who pays you. Like if everyone is dependent on the same source for its very existence, then there are practical issues that that brings up. And then there are also perceived mm -hmm. conflicts that that brings up. And I actually just don't know if that's ever been attempted anywhere. Can you think of anywhere outside of like Russia and China, any Western democracy where the entire mainstream news media has relied on government subsidies for its existence? No, but is that is that really what is on 
offer in Canada? I mean, how, how, how does the provisions, for example, about making it possible for there to be nonprofit journalism and charitable deductions for contributing to nonprofit journalism, how does that equal one source of subsidy? I don't get it. Well, in my view, and perhaps this is just my take on it, they sandwiched uh, the big news with a couple of like it was low hanging fruit for them to make nonprofit journalism possible in Canada, and it was always oh, so that doesn't count. Oh, that's wonderful, and that that, that could have a big impact, and that should have been something that we could have done for a long time. Mm-hmm. But in Canada, we do not have the same tradition of nonprofit financing for anything, really. And I kind of doubt, if you look at just in a dollar value, this is like a $595 million uh, package. Of the three initiatives, making nonprofits possible, tax breaks for digital subscriptions, and then this tax credit, they're calling it, for for, for news companies, the overwhelming lion's share of the actual economic business that this is uh, signifying is in the middle one. And they kind of, I think that that was sort of purposely buried there. Okay. And this is just taking them at their face value. They have said, we need government help or we're not going to be here anymore. The government said, here is some help. And now we've got Godfrey and Hendrick saying, thank you for the help. This is a great day. And they've been taking a victory lap. So I, I'm just reading this on its face. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think if that came to pass where um, the entire news industry was dependent on government subsidies, sure, you you would have a problem. Is that really the limit of what Canada can imagine and, and and put into practice. I mean, that sounds a little extreme to me, but if that, if all they did was, was support dying newspaper companies and, and allowed them to like linger on for a few more years. Yeah. I think that would be a public policy failure, but I don't think it has to be that. Um, of course, I'm not a Canadian and I'm not following this as closely as you are, but I'm not convinced from what I've read that this is a great idea. But I don't think that the fact that there is uh, a recognition across the government that journalism, especially local news, is a public good is necessarily a bad idea. I noticed that in the um, the report that um, that described this original proposal in that what do you call it the economic report or what is it what is the name of the document in which this oh i don't know it was a budget announcement it was uh, they were just unveil- unveiling their budget okay well in there it says that the government has an a uh, responsibility to ensure that the information people need to be democratic citizens is available and i think that's actually an important idea that is an that is a valid claim to make now Canadians should be arguing about it, but I think it's a progressive and important idea. So if I'm getting you right, if the outcome of this is merely putting the existing news media and the newspapers, which would otherwise have died on life support, then you would consider it a a public policy failure. I would. Yeah. I don't know how we look at it as, as anything other than that. There's definitely going to be an effort made to make sure that new players get some of the money. But I can speak, and I have a very apparent conflict of interest myself here. I run a small digital news company that is profitable that would not exist if the mainstream media were succeeding in the area in, in media criticism. If, if there had been any media criticism or reporting in the Canadian media, I wouldn't have bothered. It's sort right. of the market had to create create a niche for me to step into. The impact on innovation is um oh i think that's a huge factor yeah do you feel i mean you've kind of already answered this question because like if you leave these newspapers lingering around on the subsidy 
I think it's kind of apparent that that's going to have an impact. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to envision the other way where this actually becomes a stimulant. Uh, in Canada, we like to think that what makes innovation happen is government support. I'm of the opinion that necessity mm. is the mother of invention and when people need something and there's an opportunity and also when people kind of, I hate to say it, but you know, if I had not been in between gigs, I might not have done this either. And the silver lining to all the layoffs is that you've got a lot of talent out there who are looking for something to do. Mm -hmm. um, is there an example out there in the wider world of, you know, you're saying that fundamentally there's no problem with government saying, hey, we have a responsibility to make sure reporting gets done. This is a, this is a public good. Can we put that into a practical application where it's worked out well, where government has stimulated innovation and not just kept the old guys around? I think it's very hard. I think it's it's an enormous public policy challenge, and I'm not saying that that the current proposal in Canada gets it right. I don't I don't think I would say that. I'm just saying that that's a valid place to start, and then through tinkering, through public discussion, through bringing smart people together, through experiment, and just through wise, prudent, careful public policy, I think there's ways to do it. So for example, if you had a cap on how much any individual entity or firm could receive mm -hmm. of these subsidies, that would help prevent the big players from simply hanging on. If you paid attention to how many employees in a news company were actually engaged in original reporting or real local journalism, that would prevent the subsidies from going to companies that aren't actually contributing much to public service. Um, so I think that there are probably smart ways to do it. That's not to say that those are what's being proposed, but I don't think we should on ideological grounds or you know just sort of stamp our feet and say, this is impossible uh, until it is tried. However, I think you're also right, and this is why I'm uh, more than one mind on this question, that the old cliche, the necessities of other invention, that there is something about the prospect of losing jobs. Uh, there's something about being out on the street. There's something about desperation that does create new concepts and new ways of organizing news work. And that and the whole startup culture is made possible by the idea of bootstrapping, where, where you start with nothing because you have nothing and you have to come up with good ideas in order to like get off the ground. And then being a little bit successful allows you to be a little bit more successful. That is the dynamic by which new and, uh, and potent companies come into being. So I think there's you're right to worry about that. Um, I just think that maybe there's enough intelligence in Canada to figure out this public policy problem, and we shouldn't decide it through um, abstract ideological commitments that existed prior to this problem arising. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Look, this is so difficult for me because I did live that experience, and it's hard to build a business and and turn a profit to get something even to the it point is. where it's like, 
you know, gross revenue of under a million a year. And then I get invited to this process where I'm sitting around the table with all the news bosses of Canada who have failed. Yes. Uh, who are saying we have failed. Yeah. And who are, you know, we know that some of them are awarding themselves multi-million dollar bonuses while they lay off newsrooms. Yeah. And then I they go to government obscene. and say, we're going to die and we're too big to fail. And you're going to be in chaos. There's going to be no control over information. If we leave the scene, there's going to be no local reporting. And how is government going to get its messages out? And you're not going to be able to, it's just going to be a bunch of info wars out there. Mm-hmm. And then watching them rewarded for that failure is so galling. I don't want to pretend that I'm merely objecting on ideological grounds. I'm objecting out of nausea. Like it's, uh, yeah. and I'm in competition with them. They're using this money to, now they're launching podcast companies, you know? So it's, it's a complicated thing for me to disentangle, which is why I, I appreciate talking to you to test my opinions on this against somebody who's got a, you know, an academic who looks at this with a global context. I just, I hear you saying that it's, you know, let's not get on a high horse about this and let's see if it can be done. But here's the problem. If you're hands off and you say, hey, we've got this money, but it's got to be independent. So we're going to set up some independent mechanism of journalists to dole it out. Mm-hmm. Then the, the danger is it just gets gobbled up. You're basically, by definition, the panel is going to consist of the existing news media. Yes. And the fear is they're just going to carve it up for themselves. But if you're suggesting, Jay, well, what if it's hands-on and we make sure it's it has to go to real reporting? You can't just use it to underwrite the people who are writing advertorial, let's say. Um, it's got to go for local reporting and enterprise reporting. Well, now you've got the government involved in making editorial decisions about who is a journalist and who isn't and where money should go. And, you know, we always talk about the press in terms of independence, independence. I mean, isn't this, I don't want to get on an ideological high horse, but how do you not grapple with this issue of like, this does compromise independence. I mean, this is literally making the press dependent. So how do you circle that square? I think you're describing accurately why this is so hard. Um, you need some sort of decision making, but how can the decision making be independent? If you rely on uh, respected journalists, then they are going to be in a way backward looking at what journalism was rather than forward looking. Is there a group of Canadians who are who are sensitive to journalism that includes professional journalists, but also includes others who are wary of some of the limitations of that profession who aren't simply the um, usual suspects who could put together a sort of smart set of recommendations. Maybe. I don't know. You know Canada better than I do. But um, we also have to look uh, away from this picture of government subsidy towards other forms in which news companies can be organized because the business model crisis is real and journalism is not going to survive into the 21st century unless we solve it. So I'm involved in a startup in the U.S. and North America um, called The Correspondent, which is trying to solve this problem by reestablishing a far more direct relationship between journalists and the people who support their work. Because one of the premises of this proposal in Canada is sort of that Canadians support the need for good journalism and they understand it and the government has to express that too through its smart public policy. That's the premise. In the correspondent, which I'm working with, we try to establish that relationship much more directly. It's a membership-based organization. So people support with their dollars because they believe in the importance of the journalism. At the same time, they because it's not a subscription product, but a membership organization in which people are kind of joining the cause of quality journalism, they want that journalism to spread even to non-members, which is sort of the public radio model in the United States. And 
the journalists are allowed to pick their own reporting projects, so they're always committed and passionate and even obsessed about their beats, but they're also required to, for 30 to 40% of their time, to engage with members and draw knowledge from them. So the idea is that if your journalism is actually drawing on the knowledge of your members, they will feel more uh, attached to it, more loyal to it, and they'll be more willing to support it by renewing their membership. So I'm not saying that this is any sort of answer to the business model crisis in Canada or in Europe or in the U.S. It's just one of the many experiments that we need to figure out how we can support public service journalism in an age when the advertising subsidy is clearly going away. Government subsidy, as you have been saying, has all kinds of problems, but so does every other system. And so even in this uh, model, the correspondence model, which I am very strongly supporting, there are uh, risks, you know, because you could have a coterie, one small group of people supporting uh, the, uh, the publication as members, and the journalism could sort of drift into an echo chamber. There, and there are other problems as well. So we have to approach this in the spirit of, of tinkering, of public policy ingenuity, of experiment, of trial and error. And maybe that's beyond the capacity of the Canadian government. But from what I have read, I haven't seen that demonstrated yet. Well, you just described in large part my model, uh, the model that we operate here under with Canada Land. Uh, it is very much based on a traditional NPR model of people getting content for free, but supporting it voluntarily. And rather than a paywall, yeah. uh, they're paying for it so other people can have it. And and the impact that right. we have wider is part of the value add. And people have said to me, if you ever paywall this stuff, I'll stop paying you for it. Exactly. That is membership. Right. But that is a very, uh, you know, we have theoretical problems with that. If, like you say, if the base, the membership base gets politicized, that was on my mind from the start. What if the patrons of Canada Land all get together and say, we want you to cover this? And I, you know, luckily the people who support us uh, don't agree on anything. And, you know, it, it hasn't really yeah. happened yet. So that's a theoretical problem that hasn't happened. In practice, it's actually been the best, most direct relationship I've ever had because in the past I've always been serving either clicks, which is a way of serving advertisers, or I've been serving my editors and what I think they want, which is based on what they think right. their bosses want, or you're serving, you know, fear, which is, oh, we're going to come under government censure if we look like we're on one side or the other. Uh, this is the most right. direct relationship I've ever had with my audience where I feel like I am accountable to the people who pay me to do this. That's a great model. It's not just one little experiment. It feels like a very promising way of, of reorganizing the relationship of journalism to the public. It is. You know, it's very different than when you laid out earlier the premise of the government saying, this is important for Canadians. Everyone agrees that we need reporting and therefore we are going to force people to pay for it whether they like it or not. That's a different relationship. Well, force people to pay for it whether they like it or not. I mean, that's another description of what public policy is. I mean, everything that's tax supported is forced on you. You know, so government is force in that sense. So, yeah, I mean, you can you could say it that way, but that's like a hyperbolic description of anything. Yes, that's it, is. Yes, it is. is. Is force. So maybe, you know, and as I said before, may, maybe it's beyond Canada to come up with a wise way of doing that. And if the government didn't have to be involved in any way, that would probably be preferable. But let's, before we um, throw out this idea, let's also make an inventory of all of the ways that government is supporting the news media now. 
There are subsidies for magazine publishers, right? There are. There's there's the CBC, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's a major institution in Canada. So it's like there's already a government subsidy system set up, and we're talking about revising it. We're not talking about it descending from the skies and like starting to take over. And I, I just think that's the that's the more pragmatic attitude to take toward this question. But you're quite right that. There's a lot of promise and there's a lot of excitement in reestablishing a direct relationship between the people who support quality journalism and the people who make it. And getting the advertisers out of the way is, in my view, of a, a very, a very positive thing. Yeah. Um, now, to some degree, the future of this conversation depends on how many people in a free society. Can we convince of the importance of public service journalism and at the same time persuade them that they can't have quality public service journalism if they try to control it, if they try too hard to influence it? Yeah. And that that notion that in order to get the public good you want, you have to grant a certain measure of independence and freedom to journalists, including the freedom to occasionally piss you off. Yeah. If if we can get that idea, that conviction um, spread across enough people in the society, then perhaps we can have a smart policy about these things. But maybe not. Yeah. I mean, that's a really sophisticated relationship that you're describing. And it's one that I think it I is. think about a lot because on the regular, we, we get email from people saying both things, you know, uh, you pissed me off or you published a podcast I don't agree with and I'm cutting my funding. And then a lot of other people say, I'm going to increase my funding. Or I'm starting to fund this, even though, even though I don't agree with you, even though I think you're wrong. Yeah. And, you know, there is an intelligent and engaged and I think civic-minded percentage of the population out there who understand, like they will pay us to argue things that they don't like and to look at things that uh, annoy them at times. They understand that. Now, how, you you ask how many people could that possibly be? I guess I wonder how many you need, you know? Like not everybody even reads the news. Uh, most people don't. So how many people- right. To provide that service so that all of society could have it, you know, if if one percent of people kicked in the cash and it went directly to journalists, I don't know. I guess I guess this is what we're playing with right now. Yeah, the membership model responds to what you're saying because what it really amounts to is a portion of the public subsidizes the news for the rest. Yeah, and so you don't need everyone to be on board. You just need enough people to understand why this is a public good. Um, and it, it is a kind of a strange relationship, just as an editorial company is a, is a strange kind of an editorial company is different from other kinds of corporations because to have the trust and reputation it needs to continue to profit, it has to be organized in such a way that sometimes it takes actions that actually injure its own economic interests. But in the long run, that ends up being good. Now, I sometimes try to explain this in a, in a different way, in a much more personal way, um, in, in this sense. We need journalists who can tell us news that we don't like. And in our personal lives, when are we liable to do that? When are we willing to hear uncomfortable truths about ourselves? Well, it's not from strangers, and it's not from people we don't trust. It's from people we know, people who have some sense 
of our personalities, people who we trust to be guardians of our welfare. Those are the people, your friends, your family, who can tell you hard truths. And so the ability to confront people with information they don't necessarily want, like an argument they need to hear, but it's not their argument, is dependent on how strong the connection is to those truth tellers. And that's one of the reasons why the membership model interests me is because it's reestablishing a relationship, direct relationship between the users of news and the producers of news that is strong enough to withstand telling uncomfortable truths. Um, you and I are kind of simpatico on this, and this is why I actually – I disagree with you. Or I push back on this idea. It feels like it's 10 years too late for this kind of like let a thousand experiments bloom. I think in the early days of the crisis or mid-crisis, we could say, hey, we, this is a time of experimentation. We need to try everything. And we saw that here in Canada. Let's see if we can subsidize journalism by throwing events and having a burger festival that pays for a newspaper. Let's see if we can have video that pays for the news. Let's try everything. And and yeah. we, we did that and, and it, it, most of it failed. I, I feel as bullish as you on this membership model, if we're going to call it that. I feel like, you know, in an imperfect world of imperfect um, dependencies, being dependent on a paying base of members who want, who are at least supposedly in it because they want quality journalism to be reported, uh, it's the best relationship I've ever had with the financer of this craft. And because it's working here, I kind of just feel like, well, we kind of, we a lot of things fail, but we know something that could work and has good outcomes. Why don't we just double down and triple down and quadruple down on that? It's real now, you know, and, and this policy in Canada is coming out of out of that crisis, that point that we're, we're no longer in that kind of like, hey, let's throw some stuff at the wall. It's a fear-based policy, and that may, might be my biggest problem with it. And, and mm-hmm. I know Trevor Noah is waiting for you, The Daily Show. I, I <laughs> <laughs> This idea that this is uh, something that um, might be good for us but ain't good for you in the United States. What is going to happen in the United States? Because the crisis is in full force. Yeah. You're under attack from your federal government in the, the news media. The economics of news are not looking good. My fear is that in Canada, we're going to put our legacy media on life support and we're going to become this weird Galapagos island that is isolated from whatever happens next. In the rest of the world, newspapers will fail. Other things will spring up. News will continue to evolve. Journalism will continue to evolve. It might be horrible. It might be chaotic. Maybe great new things will happen. Maybe this membership thing will solve. I don't know, but it is going to keep moving elsewhere. And I'm afraid that we're not going to evolve here. Where are things at from your perspective in the United States? What is coming next in the next phase of of, of this whole grand shift that's happening in the news media? Well, we're in a dark place because um, at the current moment, um, at least a third of the public, third of the electorate, let's say, in the U.S., finds that its major source of news about Trump is Trump. That's the way they want it. Um, The core supporters of Trump have absorbed the lesson that the entire mainstream media is not only untrustworthy, but is feeding them fake news or is not only an elite to be criticized, but an enemy to be avoided and spat upon. And so what that means is that for about a third of the public, we already have an authoritarian news system up and running. And so even if we can see an economic future for important institutions like the New York Times or the Washington Post, which are the ones we always talk about, um, or even the cable networks, 
that doesn't address the fact that at least a third of the country is wired in a different way now to get its information about the federal government from the head of that government and from a kind of like sister organization, Fox News, where the distinction between Fox News and the White House is almost impossible to make anymore, literally. I mean, the deputy communica- the communications director of the White House is a former executive at Fox News. So one of the ways that situation came about is that the leadership of the Republican Party did not want to push back on Donald Trump's all-out attempt to discredit the news media in the eyes of Republican voters, even though the elites of the Republican Party start their day by reading the Washington Post and the New York Times. And so I don't know how we pull out of that. We can still inform 60 70% of the country But this core of Trump supporters, which is big enough to shape Republican Party policy, is still there. And it's not like when Trump leaves, they're going to all of a sudden become users of the news system again. So if they ever were, we are in they ever were if they ever if they ever were right. We're in a situation where where the information system of a modern democracy is in a sense devolving in the United States toward a kind of tribalism that uh, we don't know how to pull out of. And I'm I'm not optimistic that that basic pattern is going to change very soon. But Jay, you're answering a different question than the one I asked. I mean, it seems like you're grappling with the question of how do we bring the entire population uh, under the sway of reason and facts and uh, that journalism can provide. I would suggest to you an alternate narrative to what's happening for what might be happening in the U.S. And you tell me if I'm just idealizing what grass is always greener in response to the fact that a third of, of your country is just sort of kind of, I think, willingly and gleefully departed from reality because it's fun and because I think they feel that it serves them. The impact on the pre-existing news media, which maybe wasn't serving people all that well previously and was all, was in economic freefall as it is everywhere, was galvanized by that. And the entities that are left standing and stronger than ever are the ones that are in the best position to claim that they actually are doing the serious journalism that society needs. And so a return to first principles for the Washington Post, for the New York Times, for uh, NPR, for ProPublica, um, the birth of models like your own – a burgeoning, you know, separating the wheat from the chaff in the digital space from the fun and glossy and shiny clickable stuff where we're actually seeing, you know, I mean, I'm watching what's happening with podcasting in the States and it seems like, wow, the stuff that's doing the best is the best. Yeah, The most serious journalism is winning. So I think it might be a really high standard to say, how can we get everybody to regard the best journalism that's out there? But I'm watching almost a renaissance of journalism in, in opposition to what's happening under Trump. Is that, do I have um, anything to that? Yes, there is something to that, but it's about 15% of the picture that you're describing as the picture. Um, it's true that the big national institutions like New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, things like ProPublica are um, in a way doing better than ever. They're, they're stronger economically than they've been in recent years. And, They have strong publics that support them and more people who realize, wow, journalism is really important and in in a certain way is the last line of defense. Um, And so in that sense, yes, they are 
They are stronger than ever and they're rising to the challenge. But local journalism in the United States continues to completely deteriorate. Mm -hmm. You have um, state capitals where at one time 25 to 40 reporters might have been present day to day and now there's three or four. You you have no um, solution on the horizon to um, to solve this problem of of uh, local journalism just expiring. You have large areas of the country that are what um, new, uh, journalism academics call news deserts, where there literally is no source of local news, mm-hmm. which keep which keeps spreading. And when people um, see the deteriorating quality of local news, what happens is that's the place where people originally develop a relationship with journalists and understand why they're important. And when that doesn't happen, that's where they get sucked into the talk radio culture and and uh, Fox News and Rush Limbaugh and, and the internet and echo chambers. And so we're not actually reproducing a public for news. We're serving the attentive public better than ever, while the larger public is kind of drifting and in some ways drifting away from our grasp. And so you're not wrong in what you're describing. What you're describing is about 15 to 20 percent of the picture. That's really interesting, that that concept of where that citizenship and that news readership emerges. I mean, I, I've always felt like no matter what, people wake up in the morning wanting to know what's going on. And if you're in a news desert and there's no one to tell you what's mm, going on. Yeah, you're, 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 that has to be nurtured, yeah, you know, yeah. that, 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 it's a part of civic culture. Another thing uh, it's important to, re, to uh, realize here, Jesse, is I think the idea of news as, as profitable as a business that, that sustains itself over a long period of time and makes money for people is actually a parenthesis. That was actually a very a brief period when that was true. Mm-hmm. And it was not true before and it's not true after. And I think every year that we uh, recede from that parentheses, this will become more and more clear. It's actually hard to make money with news. It's not hard if you're addressing a very limited, elite, rich group of people who need information to make more money. Like you can always find an economic model for that. But for the broad public, for news to be profitable is actually a rare event. It's like the exception, not the rule. I think that's true. And, and I, I don't feel like it must be solved through the markets and that, you know, it's the conclusion that we're agreed upon. There needs to be journalism. There needs to be journalism at every level. What I am worried about is that we have tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. I'm worried that we've decided that it can't possibly stand up on its own legs. And so the government is going to come and say, hey, this compromised and really insufficient Canadian news media as it stands today, it's better than nothing. That was your Canada Land. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. We are on Twitter at canadaland. Our website is canadalandshow.com. There is a new episode this week coming out on Tuesday of Commons. Archie Mann has been hosting Canada Land Commons. He has been talking about corruption in Canada. It has been fascinating, riveting. If you have missed out on this, this is a great binge listen for your holiday season. Check it out. This episode of Canada Land is produced by Ali Graham. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. 
Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do and you want to get ad-free versions of our podcasts, please support us at patreon.com slash CanadaLand.